I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Programmers can come from anywhere. Some start coding since they're kids, others learn it even after being in a different industry. Dr. Sue Black, honorary professor of computer science at University College London, was living in a refuge when she looked to science and technology to turn her life around. Sue explained how her interest in math and in technology led her to focus on software engineering. We talked about her PhD thesis in this field. We also talked about Tech Moms, an organization she founded to empower moms and their families through technology. We also talked about how Sue played a fundamental role in the restoration of Bletchley Park, the central site for British code workers during World War II, of which more than half of them were women. Dr. Sue Black, honorary professor of computer science, entrepreneur, and technology evangelist, is joining us today. Sue, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Thank you. And I first met you at Grace Hopper last year in October in Orlando. And I was really moved by the keynote that you gave. And I know you've talked about these things in the past, but I wanted to start with a quick recap of a moment that defined what you did later on in your life and explains the work that you do. And this was when you were 25 and you were a single mom of three children and you were living in a women's refuge. Yeah. What was going on at that time? Can you give a bit of context? So I guess to just kind of like roll back slightly. So I come from just like an average family, mum, dad, brother and sister. But what happened when I was um, 12 was that my mum died and my dad remarried possibly too quickly and possibly to the wrong person. So I ended up going from being in a functional family to a dysfunctional family. I left home as soon as I could, which was when I was 16, moved away. We were living in the countryside, moved away to London started a life in London, got married at 20, had my first daughter, and then two years later had twins. And unfortunately, after that, my marriage broke down and uh, I ended up in a women's refuge, as you said. So we were in the refuge for about six months, all told. What kind of things were you doing at the refuge? Yeah, well, just kind of like making sure the kids were okay. Mm -hmm. They were preschool, so they weren't at school then. So, you know, basically my life every day was go out and buy some food, you know, like uh, cook food for the children, play with the children, do activities. You know, I didn't really want to go too far from where we were because I was worried. Uh, because my ex-husband had been violent, I, I didn't want to bump into anybody or anything. So we, we were the other side of London, but, you know, you never know who you're going to see when you go out. So I wasn't keen to go too far away from where we were staying. So it was mainly kind of, you know, being at home in the refuge. We had a room for ourselves and there were, I can't remember exactly, but maybe say about six other families in the refuge, something like that. And so, you know, maybe like interacting with the other mums, kids playing together sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes the, the refuge organised activities. But in general, it was just kind of like staying there and, and trying to work out what I was going to do next, really. And what did you end up doing next? So after being there for about six months, we got like a government accommodation, like council housing. I'm not quite sure what it's called in the US. And I'd had that previously. And so basically I swapped the old apartment that I'd had for a new apartment in a different part of London. 
And so then once that came through and we had somewhere to live, we could leave the refuge. And so then my aim, first of all, was to get my kids into my older daughter into school because they start school at four in England. So she was then nearly five, I think. So it was to get her into school and to see if there was any childcare for my twin sons, who I think were two then. So I found like a playgroup place for them. So two hours a day where they could go and play with other kids and uh, got my daughter into school. So then she started a few months after we moved into the apartment. And so, you know, I managed to do that. And then I thought, well, well, what am I going to do now? You know, my life's kind of changed from what I was expecting it to be. I thought, well, you know, I want to go back to work to earn money. But because, you know, I had three small children, childcare is expensive. And I'd left school at 16 with without many qualifications. I just knew that I wouldn't be able to earn enough money to provide for the family. You know, it was just me. So and I wasn't getting any maintenance from my ex-husband. So they were solely dependent on me. Mm-hmm. So I, I was thinking, well, what, what else can I do? So I kind of thought around for a while and then just decided that I thought the best option was to try and go back into education and to get some qualifications so that I would be able to earn more money um, to, you know, to be able to provide for my family. So that's what I did. I went along to the local college. My favourite subject at school had been math. So I signed up for a math course, which I did for a year. And then after that, I applied for university. So got into university to study um, computing. So then did a a four-year computing degree. Mm -hmm. And you did also a PhD in software engineering, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, towards the end of my undergraduate course, I was approached by one of my lecturers, uh, professors, and um, asking me if I was interested in doing a PhD. So I said, well, actually, I told him I'd love to do a PhD, but what I didn't tell him was I didn't know what a PhD was. Uh, yeah. so I didn't mention that to him. I went and looked it up afterwards, and when I found out what it was, I thought, oh, yeah, actually, I do want to do a PhD, because basically it was doing research, and I was doing some research in the last year of my degree, which I was really enjoying. So it made sense to carry on doing that, and also... I knew that doing a PhD would give me flexibility, you know, because I still had three small children at home. So they'd grown up a bit, but, you know, they were still young. And, you know, I kind of at that time, I sort of really wanted to be like an IT consultant was like my dream job. But I realized that, you know, to follow that career path, I would have to be working from nine till six every day, possibly traveling. And as a single parent with three children, you know, that's just not going to work. So I thought that doing a PhD would be a good option because it meant that, you know, I, I could work from home sometimes. And, you know, it's quite flexible. And, you know, there's no real travel involved apart from like going to conferences now and again. But, you know, so I just thought it would fit with the flexibility that I wanted and, you know, the fact that I was bringing up three kids on my own. Yes. And I know it's been a while. I think you graduated in 2001. Yeah. But I was just curious because I saw what you focused on in your PhD was the ripple effect measurements for software. So I just want to understand what was the main idea behind this work? So when I started my PhD, I was really interested in like developers, developing code and software and big software systems. So I was reading about like big banking systems, for example, you know, where the kind of kernel of the system had been written quite a long time ago. 
And then that had been built upon and added to and adapted kind of over maybe a couple of decades even. And so, you know, it had changed out of all recognition from where it started. And then, you know, like developers that were working on it were having to try and understand how to adapt it to add like for example new functionality you know you would have to try to understand the whole system to work out whether what you were going to do to change it would have any effect on you know across the system so I found out about this software measure called the ripple effect measure which looked at you know if you change some software you know some part of the software here how does that affect the rest of the system so I thought oh that's really interesting I looked into it and the work was all theoretical. They, you know, they weren't able at that time anyway to produce an actual real software tool that could compute those measures because the, it was so kind of calculation intensive and because of the, you know, the um, size of hardware and computers, it just would have taken such a long time. It probably would have taken 100 years to compute some small, for some small system to compute the measures. So I thought, why don't I try and, slightly simplify and change the kind of like the mathematical basis to make it kind of like keep it as the same thing but to simplify it so it was possible to calculate the measure was basically my idea so that's what I did I um, changed it from set theory to uh, matrix uh, arithmetic so that it was easier basically easier for a computer to you know to kind of crunch the numbers and compute the measures and then built uh, a prototype software tool in C to implement that. And yeah, so that was my PhD, really. And and like all academic projects, so, you know, it was like my dream to make it like an industrial strength tool, which could be used on those multi-million uh, lines of code. But of course, being an academic project, I think it could take programs up to, I don't know, something like a thousand lines long. So there weren't anything like uh, 20 million lines of code. But, you know, I kind of did the theoretical stuff and sort of like the proof mm-hmm. uh, that it did actually do what it was supposed to do, but it, not at scale. Yeah. And if I understand this correctly, what this does is people can run it and then they're analyzing the impact some change to the code will have. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about another project that you've done. You played a fundamental role in the restoration of Bletchley Park. We spoke recently to Mar Hicks. She was on the show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And here at Bletchley Park, there were 10,000 people that worked doing code-breaking activities in World War II, and they saved 22 million lives. And I saw that you said half of them were women. So out of those 10... Yeah, it was about 8,000. Okay, that's great. And you went there in 2003. Can you describe what that was like? Sure. So... In like 1998, I set up the UK's first online network for women in tech because I was going to conferences. So now as a PhD student and there were hardly ever any women there and at my kind of like usual academic conferences. And then I went to a conference in Brussels, which was a women in science conference. And I just had such an amazing time and and a much better time than I did usually at kind of traditional academic conferences uh, that I came back from there thinking I've got to try and get in touch with more women who like tech and so I can chat to them and kind of form a community of uh, women so that we can all talk about technology because we hardly ever meet each other. You know, it's like, 
if you go to something with 100 people, it would be like 90 men and 10 women, maybe. So I really like that kind of uh, women in tech environment. So I set up UK's first online network, Women in Tech, called BCS Women. So it's British Computer Society Women's Group in, in 1998. And in 2003, I was invited up to a meeting at Bletchley Park, a bit like a British Computer Society meeting, because I was chair of that group. That's why I was invited there in the first place. So like on the way there, I was thinking, what do I know about Bletchley Park? And really all that I knew was that the code breakers worked there during the Second World War and that kind of in my head, I didn't really know who those code breakers were or what they looked like or anything. But in my head, I thought it was probably about 50 old men. And I kind of had this in my head of them wearing like tweed jackets and smoking pipes and doing the Times crossword, you know, the newspaper uh, crossword, cryptic crossword, and um, and maybe doing a bit of code breaking on the side. So I don't know where that image came from, but that's kind of what I thought. And then so I, I went up to the meeting, spent the day in the meeting, and then I think about 4 p.m. I thought, well, I'm going to go and have a look around because I want to know more about Bletchley Park. So, and it, you know, it's a big site, it's like 26 acres. So I went for a walk around and walked into one of the code-breaking blocks and saw these uh, like several guys at the end of the block kind of tinkering away, kind of putting together some kind of amazing feats, kind of like some mechanical, I don't know, engineering-y type machine. I, could, I didn't know what it was. So I went over to get a closer look and chat to them. I went over and asked them what it was, and they said they were rebuilding Turing's uh, bomb machine, which was one of the machines which was used to industrialise the code-breaking process during World War II, and I thought I knew nothing about it. So I was very interested and asked them you know, lots of questions about it. And so that's the machine that's featured in the imitation game, the film. So at the end of the Second World War, Churchill said that all those machines, and there were many of them, had to be broken up into parts smaller than a human fist and destroyed. And so they were. And their aim was to really kind of showcase what went on at Bletchley Park, you know, the incredible ingenuity and kind of the the amazing kind of invention and feats of engineering, all these amazing machines which were created to industrialise, to break the codes, industrialise the code-breaking process. So they told me all about that and I got very excited and thought, oh, this is amazing, I didn't know anything about this. And then at the end of that part of the conversation, they said to me, well, anyway, you know, so what are you here for today? Why are you here? So I said, oh, I'm here representing BCS Women, this group of women in technology. And uh, they said, oh, well, did you know that more than half the people that worked here were women? So I was like, no, because I kind of, I had in my head this image of like 50 old blokes, basically. How many people worked here? And he said more than 10,000. So that just completely blew my mind. A, that lots of women work there, and B, that more than 10,000 people work there. So I went away that time wanting to really raise the profile of the women that had worked at Bletchley Park to, to kind of showcase them, tell their stories. I managed to raise some funding to record some of the memories of the women that worked there, like an oral history project, because I was really worried that, you know, that the veterans wouldn't be around that much longer. and We really needed to capture their stories. Mm-hmm. So we ran that project kind of like 2007, I think. And then 2008, we had the launch of the project. And the director of Bletchley Park at the time uh, gave a speech. And his main point was that Bletchley Park were having financial issues. So actually, he said, he actually said they were teetering on a financial knife edge. And he said that their main revenue were visitors to the site and they weren't getting enough visitors. And he was really worried that if the visitor numbers dropped, then they wouldn't have enough income, they'd have to close. 
And he said, and if we close, we'll never be able to open again. You know, that'll be it. Yeah. So I thought, wow, that's terrible. That's terrible. You know, all these people worked here during World War Two. And then a few weeks after that, I was invited up to Bletchley Park for a proper tour with a veteran. So someone had worked there. And so I went up for this tour, went around the whole site, found out about all these amazing code-breaking achievements. And then at the end of the tour, the um, guy was telling us about uh, the fact that um, the work that was done at Bletchley Park had shortened the war by two years. And at that time, 11 million people a year were dying. So, you know, potentially the work that had been done there by 10,000 people, 8,000 women, had saved 22 million lives, and yet most people didn't know that much about it. And also it might have to close. I just thought, no, that's terrible. That can't happen. Do you think the reason why a lot of people didn't know about this was because, like you said, the machines had to be destroyed? And then obviously if the machines are destroyed, you cannot talk about what you were working on, right? Absolutely. So everyone was, they had to sign the Official Secrets Act, so they weren't allowed to talk about it. And also, yeah, all the machines were destroyed. So there wasn't a lot of evidence of what had actually happened there, still there, really. You know, the huts were there, the buildings were there, but none of the machinery that was used. And because everyone had been sworn to secrecy, so the story wasn't told. And so it wasn't in our history books or anything, really, the, the kind of the scale of what was done there and also the kind of um uh the contribution it made to the end of the second world war you know like shortening it by uh two years potentially so i think you know it was a victim of its own success really in that you know it was kept secret but then no one really knew what happened there obviously apart from a few people and like you said this place was at risk of closing due to lack of funds and you help through social media I think I saw you leverage social media to help save this place yeah absolutely so to start with so in 2008 it was so by then in my career I was now um, a head of department so I'd got promoted a few times so I'd become a lecturer during my PhD so I became a professor during my PhD and then got promoted several times and so by now in 2008 I was head of department of a computer science department so because of that I was on an email list of heads and professors of computing around the UK so you know I kind of got upset that this place might close I thought I've got to do something about it so I took a photo of one of the code breaking huts with a blue tarpaulin over the end looking like it was going to fall down I sent that round to my peer group so to all the heads and professors of computing in the country and said look we've got to do something about this you know Bletchley Park can't close and I asked everyone to sign a petition that was on the uh, Prime Minister's website, which someone else had set up asking the government to save Bletchley Park. So I sent that around and then looked at the petition a few hours later and you could see who was signing the petition and was amazed to find that there were all these really famous professors of computer science from around the UK had signed the petition. So I was like, okay, that's great. So it's not just me that thinks this, you know, like my peers and people that I really look up to and respect think the same as me. We've got to save Bletchley Park. So I said to one of my colleagues at work, you know, like all these professors are interested, you know, kind of this is a campaign. What else can we do? So he said, why don't we write a letter to the Times? So we put together a letter to the Times newspaper and I sent that round and about 100 academics signed that straight away, really. And we then were sending that into the Times newspaper to be published. And I thought, well, why don't I just contact the journalists that I know, which wasn't very many. Uh, but luckily, one of them was the BBC technology correspondent, Rory Keflin-Jones. So I sent that to him and he came almost straight back to me 
And the whole story is in my book, so it's a bit longer than this. But in a nutshell, yeah. he said, "Okay, it's a story. I think it's a story. Let's go up to Bletchley Park. I'll interview you, and I'll basically get it on the news." So the next week, he did that. I was on BBC News. It went around the world. It was on, on BBC America. So that day, I think it's twenty fourth of July in two thousand and eight. You know, like it was a big story, and it was the first story on the BBC website in the UK. So I got lots of response that day. So I probably got about two hundred emails from people. But then that was it really because I was just thought well what else am I going to do nothing actually had changed lots of people said oh that's terrible but nothing had really changed and I didn't really know what to do like I didn't have a background in marketing or PR or fundraising or anything I was like an academic computer scientist yeah and so I wasn't really sure what to do so I kind of carried on talking to people anybody that I thought might be slightly interested I was like you know can you help say Bletchley Park blah blah and then a few months after that, so towards the end of 2008, I started using Twitter. I'd signed up for it a year before and just thought it was rubbish. I couldn't work out what to do with it. But then I was at a conference where people were using it and I, I suddenly realised its potential for the campaign and uh, started using it and, you know, put stuff about Bletchley Park. Oh, I set up a blog. So I put my blog on my profile said something about Bletchley Park and people actually started finding me saying they wanted to help with a campaign so that was great and met up with some of those people took them to a talk which one of the uh, code breakers was giving then took them up to Bletchley Park and kind of and they were much better at social media than me so they really helped me to kind of like build a social media campaign to help save Bletchley Park so that kind of so using Twitter kind of started the whole community community of people who cared about Bletchley Park supporting Bletchley Park and like raising awareness and I also realized quite quickly that if I just typed Bletchley Park into the Twitter search box I could find everyone in the world that was already talking about Bletchley Park and I could start a conversation with them so for me that was amazing because how else would I have found those people I don't think I could have found them any other way that's great would you say if it went for social media it might have closed absolutely yeah I don't know what else we would have done really I mean maybe gradually it would have worked but I really think that without Twitter Bletchley Park probably would have closed yeah absolutely yeah and you know so after that kind of community building I also kind of realized that I needed to get like well-known people you know like key kind of high profile people involved with the campaign as well to kind of spread the word in that way and so I I saw Stephen Fry tweeting so do you does do people in the states know Stephen Fry no no okay I guess he's a British celebrity he's kind of known as a national treasure in the UK he's like an actor comedian you know he's been kind of like high profile for I don't know like at least 20 years or something oh okay no I'm not I'm looking him up okay so somebody very famous over there yeah yeah so he's really high profile in the UK okay wow a selfie because he was stuck in a lift oh. in London and couldn't get out he was there with his friends yeah and I saw that photo of him and I just thought Stephen Fry he must be interested in Bletchley Park because he's known to be interested in history and technology those two things so I just thought oh he must be interested oh that's great so I looked at his profile and luckily he was following me on Twitter which meant that I could send him several direct messages through Twitter and so basically I just asked him to help with the campaign mm -hmm. and like, so I did that one evening and then went to bed thinking well like, you know I don't know if that will work but let's see what happens mm -hmm. and then the next morning he uh, tweeted a link to my campaign blog and at that time I was getting about 50 hits a day so back in early 2009 I thought that was okay yeah <laughs> 50 hits 
my blog and one tweet from Stephen Fry it went up to 8,000 that day oh that's awesome yeah it kind of taught me a lesson that okay so you you know it is really a valuable use of time to find key influential people who you know who think the same as you uh, and get them on board with the campaign and so yeah it made a massive difference and that day I went to I became the the number one retweeted person on Twitter in the world. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so I went from obscurity to that in in a day because because of Stephen Fry's tweet and also because I think it got the message out to lots of people who cared about the same sort of things because lots of his followers of course would care about history and technology as well. So yeah, so that was a real lesson and then kind of just gradually over time using social media mainly just do more and more things and more and more people got involved and like one guy ran like a comedy a stand-up comedy show with all the proceeds going to Bletchley Park and so people started doing their own fundraising events for Bletchley Park. One woman walked up to Everest Base Camp I think and got sponsorship and you know, so we kind of raised the profile and then lots more people started getting interested, setting up their own fundraising projects to help Bletchley Park. And it kind of like gradually that built into a really big thing. Mm-hmm. And from our conversation, we've gone from having more than half of women working at Bletchley Park, so out of 10,000, about 8,000. Then you talked about being at a conference in the 90s and you're pretty much the only woman or you and 10 other women out of 100. So that's a big jump. And right now, another thing that you're focused on is you have this organization called Tech Moms where you're looking after moms in the sense that you're teaching them about technology. What are some of the backgrounds of these women that come to Tech Moms? Well, so I first started off kind of a few years ago wanting to, so it's like I've now had like, I don't know, 20, 25 year career, um, mainly in computer science in academia. And then just the last few years, I've really wanted to help just like the average person in the street understand the potential of technology because, you know, like I just see massive potential for technology to change people's lives, to change so many things for the better all around the world. Like saving Bletchley Park. Like saving Bletchley Park. But, you know, like about uh, kind of like alleviating poverty, you know, like uh, helping people to educate themselves. So I think technology just offers so many opportunities, but lots of people are still scared of it really. And it's quite hard to admit that you don't know certain things to do with technology. So I think a lot of people are scared to look stupid. You know, there's all sorts of things like that with it because most people haven't learned it at school. And, you know, it's uh, kind of been built up into this kind of big magical thing, like, you know, the whole coding thing. It's like, you know, if you know how to write simple code, you know that anyone really could not become a software engineer, but anyone could understand what coding is and just the basics um it's not magic but but lots of people believe that they totally couldn't ever do it because it's too difficult and only really really clever people can understand it and stuff like that and I I really wanted to help people to understand that there's massive opportunities even if you just do a bit of kind of tech education see what um the opportunities are for you and I started running uh, workshops with kids so like with seven-year-old kids teaching them app design and coding and I uh, really wanted to get the parents involved too. So 
we'd get the parents in at the end of the day. And one thing that I noticed almost straight away was that when we were encouraging the parents to do the same stuff that their seven-year-olds had been doing, the dads in general, not everyone, but in general, the dads would just kind of like go, oh, all right then, and just kind of get on with it. And the mums would be like, oh, no, I want my kids to do it, but I don't really want to do it. So I really noticed that hesitation. And that just started me thinking, I really want to get everyone to feel more comfortable with technology and you know not so kind of scared or think it's something they can't do why don't I start with mums and get mums on board with technology to kind of empower them themselves and show them the opportunities but then also of course that will have an effect on their children and so their children if the mums are positive about technology then the kids will be positive about technology as well so you know that'll mean we're creating female role models like the mums as as, uh, technology role models in society and also maybe changing the way the whole of our kind of community see technology and the extended family and that kind of thing so I thought well why don't I put together a like a technology course specifically targeting mums so basically that's what I did so I put together a course which is like basic office IT skills like using Google uh, Cloud Google Drive and stuff but also stuff like app design web design social media, staying safe online and coding in Python. So I put a program together, got it accredited here in the UK and then started running that in a school in a deprived area in London. And what I really wanted to do was to target mums who didn't really have access to to, to online courses or to courses in technology with the aim of empowering them to, to kind of change their lives, really. So I started running and we, and we had kind of great success almost straight away really when I was teaching the first classes ever I did a focus group beforehand and and asked some of the mums you know why did they want to learn about technology and uh, one of the mums Amina said I'm scared of computers I'm scared of the keyboard she said I know what all those letter keys are but what all those number keys at the top I don't don't know what they are and I'm scared if I touch one of them or like touch the wrong one something terrible is going to happen yeah so that's kind of where she was before the course and the course is like um five modules two five two-hour modules so it's just 10-hour course one module a week yeah what I like about this approach from what you're describing is there's sort of this top-down structure where you begin with interacting with the computer, you know, just using UIs, and then you go under the hood with programming versus some other type of organizations that also target women, but they go hands-on, learn HTML and CSS and make a web app versus the problem starts, you know, higher up in the technology chain of actually touching computers and clicking Exactly. So one of the first things I wanted to get them to do was to just get comfortable with the computer to start with uh, before even thinking about um, coding or anything. And so, you know, like in the first class, I talk about hardware and uh, software and what those things are. You know, how do you know if it's hardware? How do you know if it's software? What is software? Uh, that kind of thing. And we talk about the cloud in the first class as well. And what is the cloud? You know, the, the great filing cabinet in the sky. Yeah, yeah, there's a comic that I saw recently. There's some CDs wrapped on balloons. And someone's asking, are you sure this is how we get things in the cloud? <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, like, if you've never learned it and, you know, you're not reading the newspapers every day or, or textbooks or whatever, how would you know what that was like without looking it up, right? So if you're not used to looking things up all the time, you probably just 
terms and you just really wouldn't know what they were. So I really wanted to demystify all of that from the beginning. So, yeah, so the first class is kind of like having, it's looking at email and creating a document in Google Drive and stuff like that. And also like the hardware, software stuff and the cloud. And then the second week is app design. So I get them straight into designing their own apps in the second week. And we do it all on paper. And then if they if they finish that, then we use uh, an app to, to produce a prototype and stuff like that. But we start on paper. And uh, so I was walking around this app design class and there's Amina, you know, the tech mum that, that came into the focus group and said that she was scared of the keyboard. And I was like, oh, Amina, how are you doing? You know, like, how are you finding it? And she said, oh, tech mums has changed my life. So I said, well, that's great, but how can that have happened so quickly? Because, you know, that's like music to my ears, but I, I really wasn't expecting that sort of thing so early on. And so she said, well, last week she said that um, she runs a school uniform shop, so selling school uniforms in the market near the school. And she said that for her to get her samples over to customers, she would wrap them up and her son would come round and take them over to the customer site. Uh, she said, but last week you taught us how to add attachments to emails. And I realized that I can take a photo of the garment and I can email it across to my customer. And so, you know, and so for her, that was going to make a massive difference in her business because she wouldn't have to you know, keep doing all these deliveries. She could just email stuff. And, you know, it's a very simple thing for us, like adding an attachment to an email. But, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And, uh, you know, she just didn't know about that. And um, I went in to, to see her last summer and into her shop. And um, she said she's now got 10 times the amount of customers that she had back then a few years ago when she was sending, you know, she was doing everything without technology, basically. So, yeah, it's just made a big difference to her business. There are all sorts of mums that have come on the course. And another one of our mums, Lisa, when she uh, finished the programme. So we invite the mums to give a talk at the end. So we have like a graduation with certificates and presentation. We invite the mums to talk if they want to uh, about how they found the experience. And so I went to uh, Lisa's graduation and uh, she said that tech mums had really helped her to remember kind of who she was before she had children. And she'd remembered that when she left school, she'd failed her maths uh, GCSE, her maths uh, exam at 16. And she'd always wanted to take it again, but she'd never done it. And so coming on the course had built her confidence, helped her, you know, her to sort of remember who she was before she had kids. So she thought, I'm going to go along to the college and I'm going to see if I can do it now. I'm going to go and see if I can sign up for the maths course so I can retake it and hopefully pass it. So she'd gone along to the college and uh, done an entrance test and they'd signed her up and she was about to start to, you know, to take the qualification again to do the course. And she said, so she was so happy that uh, they'd accepted her onto the course. She was thinking, well, what else can I do? So actually, I'd quite like to get a part-time job. So I think even on the way back from the college, she'd gone into the local school and there was an advertisement. They were looking for a teaching assistant in the school. So she'd applied for that job and she'd got the job as well. So, you know, it's kind of a lot of it is about building confidence and helping mums connect with, with who they are. You know, they are mums, but they're not just mums. And, you know... It's just kind of helping them to, I guess, feel more confident with technology, but also kind of like feel more confident just in themselves and remember, yeah, I guess who they are. Really. And some of this is surprising to some people because we are so used to doing these things and using technology. That's why I think it helps to travel and then meet other people and then 
yeah, it helps also make better products and things like that. You know, I mean, we, it, it's important in so many ways. You know, and it, I really like the fact that now businesses are understanding how important diversity is of, of all types. You know, things, things have really moved on from kind of 20 years ago when I set up the BCS Women Group. I was asked then, setting up a group for women in tech, why was I ghettoizing myself? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, oh, yeah, so I'm creating a ghetto for women. That's what I'm trying to do. There's some crazy, uh, crazy remarks from people. And, of course, there's still people like that. But I think the whole mood is changing. And, and like, kind of over the 20 years ago, the number of women in, in tech was about 20%. And it's still about 20%. But the attitude towards it and the whole business case and the kind of real push in organisations to uh, employ women, employ women in tech, promote women, you know, all of that is really becoming a big issue now, which it really wasn't then. You know, no one was really interested apart from a few other women and, and a few men who, who thought that, you know, that setting up a group of women in tech was a good idea. And with Tech Moms, you plan to reach one million moms by 2020. What was the strategy for that? for reaching 1 million? Well, so we've run in schools and colleges in the UK. And we, so, you know, we've been kind of like going into classrooms and teaching people. But I really want to make a, a bigger impact. So I want to get to a million mums by 2020. And so what we've been doing recently is putting together programs or content which can be accessed online rather than having to go to a classroom. Because, of course, lots of mums also can't go to a classroom because it's just too complicated with children and whatever to, to go somewhere. They might live in a, a really rural area where it's too far to go to get to, to a classroom. So um, we've just piloted Tech Mums TV. So we've been working with uh, Facebook in London, live streaming a one-hour show once a week for uh, five weeks, focusing on stuff like how to find work online, how to kind of find your voice online, how to set up a blog or a vlog, how to sell stuff online to make money. And so the pilot's gone really well. I think we've had 150,000 views of the season and uh, we're currently uh, working on season two, which hopefully will start in September. So we've got a Tech Mums page on Facebook. We've got a Tech Mums private group on Facebook and uh, all of the shows are in there for people to watch. And we're kind of building that together with some kind of like more educational content into a product which we're calling Tech Mums Clubs, which will be like a two hour once a week local club where you can go along in the UK anyway so far to your local library, for example, and do your uh, do go to Tech Mums Club every week for it'll be running 30 weeks a year. So like three 10 week uh, terms. Yeah, that was what I was thinking also. If, if the moms are going to school to pick up their kids and there happens to be a computer there, that can also be a way to... That's why we started in schools in the first place was because mums are going there anyway. Oh, right. Okay. It's not trying to get the mums to go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And so it's similar with uh, libraries here now. I think libraries are uh, kind of like they're moving over to doing lots of things with technology as well as having books in the UK just because that's the way kind of everything's going. And so they're really interested in, in having taught courses within the library. Uh, and, you know, and so one that's for, for mums where they can potentially take their kids along if they want to, you know, like once a week to learn tech skills is something that's in demand. We've been talking to libraries in the UK and they're interested. And again, we, we could uh, run it in schools. One of the issues with schools in the UK 
is that so when we started schools had funding for this kind of thing but because of the uh, austerity measures with the UK government a few years ago all that funding was cut in schools so schools don't have any funding to pay for this sort of program anymore whereas uh, libraries hopefully do. <laughs> but we've also got exciting opportunities coming up like so I've just been contacted by uh, a charity working in Puerto Rico uh, inviting us over to uh, teach tech mums there to work the government in Puerto Rico so we're kind of getting gradually getting more and more exciting opportunities coming up and I think like over time it's been quite interesting when we first set up a few people understood what I was trying to do I think um but more and more people now are seeming to understand because you know I've been going for six years and you know in my mind really I want to kind of change the way the whole of society looks at technology because from either an individual or an organizational or a kind of like national uh, perspective we need people to have technology skills so as individuals it empowers us and provides us with more opportunities as an organization it empowers organizations because the more that your staff understand technology and what you can do with it of course you know the more innovative you can be inventive the more that you can take up the challenges that you know that kind of present themselves in the modern world and in terms of like countries nations as a whole the more your workforce is tech savvy the more that you as a country can take up opportunities because we're now operating in a global marketplace you know so if people in your country are tech savvy compared to another country which is not tech savvy of course there's so many more opportunities for your country to be successful because you've got people that can take up opportunities globally rather than just locally yeah or understand what's going on we have technologies involved in everything at this point politics also, the conversation of Facebook right now, if people don't understand technology, they're not going to have a say in how to do things. Yeah, and they won't understand what's going on as well. Exactly. Yeah, or the Equifax breach. There's lots of hacks. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, Sue, thank you so much for coming on the show. I know we went a bit over time, so I appreciate it. No, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.